अगर बस है तो पिचावन में सूद हुआ बिजार आ जाऊंगा मैं तो भाई किस बात की कटेगी मेरे को वो बता दे बस है थोड़ी है किस बात का चीज कर सकता हूं आपसे मैक्सी गए भाई Yes, we're still in India and we're back on the bus from Delhi to Tajara. We're headed to the wedding of some very good friends of mine. And if you've got no idea why I'm talking about this, you should really skip back an episode and listen to my conversation with Rebecca Lockwood. Not only because it's a really good episode, but because the guest for this episode of Lawyer by Day had a real role in shaping the lawyer that Rebecca is today. Hi, my name's Barbara Jackman and I am a partner at Jackman Nazmi and Associates where a boutique law firm that specializes in immigration and refugee law uh we do a fair bit of test case litigation on human rights issues as as it affects non-citizens as the laws in Canada affect non-citizens and we've been at it for a number of years quite a few years actually at this point We've got a few hours on the bus ahead of us and I want Bob to go back to the beginning to law school When I went to law school it was in the early 70s so I was part of the student movement at that time and I went to law school because I wanted to do something with my life where I could actually help people my choice was to go on and teach maybe or or become a lawyer and I thought a lawyer was more practical but I wanted to be a labor lawyer I figured I would help the workers <laughs> and then when I got to law school um they had a clinic system and as students we advocated to have to get credit for the work that we did within the, the legal aid clinics the student clinics successfully the university set up a training program where they used the clinics as part of the training um and so that was a really good experience i ended up working at the center for spanish speaking people and it it totally changed my life in a lot of ways first of all i learned to speak spanish i became friends with a lot of people it was a time when refugees were coming from South America and for me it was a real eye opener because I knew little about South America I'd grown up in a small city in in Canada um and they were people like us people like university students but you know they'd been killed or uh their friends had been killed or they'd been tortured and detained and it was some of those people are very very close friends of mine now Um so it changed my view of the world it changed my view of what I wanted to do as a lawyer um and it it broadened my horizons in a way that I I would never have anticipated before I went to law school um so so I ended up doing immigration work because it seemed to me that the immigrants in Canada were the ones that had no voice and no protection and at that time there was very little in in the way of court challenges to how they were treated or what kinds of laws were applied to them um it wasn't until we well through that time period it was my generation certainly not just me but a generation of young lawyers that started going to court and challenging what what was being done with immigrants like the arbitrary unfairness of telling someone they had to leave without even hearing their story kind of thing um so it, that and then in 1982 uh Canada got its charter of rights and freedoms so we in we brought the constitution home to Canada so it became a Canadian constitution instead of um British legislation i mean it actually is british legislation but incorporated in that the constitution was the charter of rights and freedoms which guaranteed human rights to to people within Canada without regard to citizenship it, i mean most of the sections but for the ones that give the right to vote to citizens and the right to sit in the house of commons to citizens 
the the rights in our charter apply to every person at least every person who's in Canada. And so that really opened the door to, to advancing the cause of fair treatment of non-citizens. Um, and it, that that's really where my whole career ended up going. I spoke to Barb about how she first got started in this work. A combination of advocating for human rights for Chileans, like advocating against the dictatorship, but also becoming... Um, becoming active kind of within the community, within the Chilean community itself. It's hard to explain. It's not like I joined a political party or anything like that. But um, I I was involved in community events and those kinds of things. I I ended up being quite involved. Um, I, I went to Chile on a human rights tour uh, to monitor trials for political prisoners. In fact, I went a couple of times, um, one time with a, a Canadian member of parliament. Um, and those experiences were really, uh, really eye-openers because like we were there under a dictatorship. And so one of the experiences I had was, and it was the, the, day, the national days of protest in, I think it was in 1984, it's a long time back. And I had gone into a poor neighborhood to a priest's house to witness the protests that were taking place. Well, once you're in there, you couldn't get out. And that night, the military was all over the place shooting. And and, uh, in the neighborhood next to us, a priest had been killed in his house. They shot into the house. We were on the floor and afraid. And I remember when I woke up that morning, the next day, my hair was white. It had turned white overnight because I was so afraid <laughs> of what was happening with the shooting and things like that. So, so it, 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 you know, it's a good experience. It makes you realize, like, I could walk away from that. Once the morning came and the curfew was lifted, I could leave. But um, they couldn't. They lived there. And, and so they didn't have any choice. They had this military that was around them killing, killing young, young kids because there were kids killed that night. Um, so it, it, it makes you realize that human rights are like real things it's, and very serious. People said when I, when I was becoming a lawyer um, that, that I would get a distance from that. And in some ways you do. I mean, I can go home and sleep at night. I used to go home and cry sometimes. Um, but you don't really. You, you don't get a distance. I mean, your clients are people. And you see people who've gone through a lot of terrible things, and it, it, it doesn't not affect you. It, it, it does affect you. Back when I started practicing, I, I'm probably wrong on this because it was a long time ago, but we we brought cases directly to the Court of Appeal. The immigration cases from tribunals went up to the Court of Appeal. Now they go to a first-level court, and then from there to the Court of Appeal only in certain limited instances. So I was in the Court of Appeal, I think it was five times in my first couple of years, my first I, I think it was my first year of practice, but it might have been my first two years of practice. And I won all the cases. So I was thrilled. And then I lost the sixth one. <laughs> I was just <laughs> devastated because I just had this assumption I was going to win them all, that the issues were right, and I didn't win them all. <laughs> 
do you remember what happened in that first appearance or how you felt um, finding out that you'd been successful in that first, that second, that third decision? Well, I mean, it's a wonderful feeling because what you do is you change someone's life. You give them another chance at being able to remain in Canada because these are all deportation cases, cases where they lost the refugee case or they lost their their, uh, deportation appeal. I don't remember exactly which ones they were, but um, I th- I think they my early ones were most they were either deportation appeals or refugee appeals. Um, so we, I just remember being so excited that I won, but I don't remember the specific case. There's been so many cases that have gone on since. I remember my first case in the Supreme Court of Canada was um, the the Singh appeal. Well, actually, there were two instances. My first time I went back then, you could. You went to Ottawa and you argued an application for leave to appeal to the Supreme Court in person. And I arrived late uh, and because my name, my case wasn't first on the list, so I didn't know I had to be there on time. I thought I would just come later. Well, the court held up court for me to get there. <laughs> so that wasn't a good way to start. And I had really practiced. She had a short period of time to make the arguments, and I'd practiced that night before to make sure I'd done the arguments within the time period. And then the court didn't call on me. They only called on the government. It was my application for leave. So by not calling on me, they were giving a clear signal to the government that they thought leave should be granted. So they granted leave from the bench, and I never got to open my mouth. (laughs) So I was actually devastated because I wanted to argue (laughs) in front of the Supreme Court for the first time on a leave application, and I never got to argue. But my client got his case. His case uh, leave was granted, and in the end, the government settled and let him remain permanently in the country. So I never actually argued the appeal. And the first full appeal I was on was the Singh case, which is an important constitutional case in Canada. I acted for one of the interveners, the Canadian Council of Churches and the Federation of Canadian Sikh Associations. And and that was my first time in in arguing an, an actual appeal in the Supreme Court. And they didn't limit the time like they do now. So the case went on a couple of days, actually, in terms of arguments, because there were several interveners as well as the appellants. Um, but my I started my argument towards the end of the first day, and I was so nervous because it was the Supreme Court of Canada and I was a young lawyer. This was 1984, and I guess I'd been called in 1978, so it was only a few years after I'd been called as a lawyer. Um, and I lost my place, and I dropped my I dropped the book that I was quoting from, lost my place. <laughs> I was so flustered. The court adjourned for the day so I could get my act together <laughs> and proceeded the next morning. <laughs> it was funny. And the same case ultimately was successful. The court found that the, uh, the right to life, liberty, and security of the person applied to non-citizens as well. So that was a, a good case. It was the first case where they, they looked at the issue of citizenship in relation to human rights. I'm wondering what it was like to be a woman and an advocate in these matters in the early 1980s. You know, there, there's always, there's, you never really know in terms of how you're treated by the court, whether it's because you're a woman. I mean, when I've felt like judges were dismissive or being obnoxious um, or officials were that way, I didn't know whether it was because I was a woman or because I was 
argumentative or because I had a, I, I mean, eventually I developed a reputation and or whether they thought I was like too radical because I was involved in pushing to reform the laws, not just arguing cases in court. And so I, en- I ended up with a bit of a reputation of being like a radical lawyer in that sense. So you never really know what it is that causes the judge not to like you or causes the decision maker not to like you or to treat you dismissively. I don't know. I mean, sometimes I think it was being a woman that, that they, you be in a courtroom with all men and you're the only woman and the only, <laughs> and they, they just keep passing over you and letting other people talk, that kind of thing, um, I think was gender discrimination. What are the challenges of running an immigration rights firm as opposed to an immigration processing firm, particularly in terms of keeping a, a sustainable business model? Well, there's a there's a lot of problems with running an immigration rights firm kind of thing. First of all, people don't really have money to pay. So, if you're if you're doing the processing of applications, like you're helping business people come into Canada or skilled workers, there are people who have money who can pay for a lawyer. A lot of our clients are refugees who need legal aid, and so we do a fair bit of legal aid. Or we, if they're not eligible for legal aid, we do. Um, payment plans for people and and don't charge what they would be charged at a downtown firm. We don't charge the same rates. You can't. People don't have that kind of money um, that lawyers normally charge for cases. So you, you're making a choice not to earn as much, I think, as as you could as a lawyer. But you know, I would I would feel my life was deadly if I had to go work in a big firm downtown doing corporate law. That's not where I would want to be. I'd rather be working with people. So there's trade-offs in terms of what choices you make around around the kind of law that you practice. There's there's that problem. Um, then the I guess the other problem is is you take on cases that are difficult cases. Like I, I'm. There's. I remember being on a panel with this lawyer where he told the 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 people the students he was speaking to. He said, "You know, I've not ever lost a case. I only take cases I can win." And I said, "Well, you know, I've lost lots of them <laughs> because I don't just take cases I can win. I take art cases, and I figure I've won if I kept the person in Canada, even if I haven't won the case. Ultimately, because they see the person as a terrorist or something like that. You don't practice law to win every case. You can't." Um, because otherwise you wouldn't take the cases where they really need legal assistance. So I think there's that kind of problem. And then I think there's stresses over time in terms of the kind of law we do where people, our clients are under incredible stress. And the end result of losing a case is someone might go back and be tortured somewhere or killed. Um, So the stakes are pretty high in terms of the work we do too. I've read that you very specifically identify yourself as your client's lawyer at the start of telephone conversations with your clients. Why do you do that? Well, we found out in the security cases that um, our our phone, our clients' calls were being monitored. We knew that. Um, But because they had agreed to let their phones be, be monitored for a certain period of time and then they couldn't get out of it. But, um, but we assumed as lawyers that our calls would be protected. So we would open the call by saying we were lawyers um, to make sure that our calls weren't 
being listened to by the security service. And we find out in court that um, that they have been listening to our calls for like a, a, well over a year. Um, they were actually listening to our conversations with our clients. Like they didn't respect solicitor client privilege. And their excuse was that the court order didn't specifically say that um, that they couldn't listen to it. I mean, it applies regardless, unless the court says it doesn't apply. It, it applies. But they were saying that the court had to say it did apply before it did. I mean, that would turn the whole, that turns the whole concept of solicitor client privilege upside down if you have to get a court to specifically say it exists. So um, the court ultimately told them they were wrong. But it's safer, I find it safer with any client who's in jail um, or any client who's involved in a security proceeding to, to say that, to identify yourself as the lawyer at the outset of the call. Then they have no basis for saying they inadvertently listened to it. I get the impression that you're often asked by international colleagues to explain what's happening in Canada in immigration law. What would you like to be able to say to those colleagues in 10 years' time? You know, I almost would like to return to the early years of our charter where everyone was hopeful that it would um, that it would expand in the protection of human rights as time went on. That didn't happen. We had the uh, Harper government, the government of Stephen Harper in place for 10 years. And that government, people don't probably don't realize, but it, the Harper government was really like the Tea Party. I mean, it was... It, 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 the cabal that sort of ran the government, maybe cabal's not a good word to use, it's too uh, pejorative, they were very anti-democratic, they were very mean. So, for instance, I'll give you an example of, of the kinds of things they did. If you want to sponsor your spouse, the the rule was your marriage had to be a genuine one and, and that you didn't marry with the intention of just immigrating to Canada, as that your primary intention was to immigrate to Canada. So even if your primary intention was to immigrate to Canada, as long as your marriage was genuine, you could still come. The big concern was really genuineness. But if it wasn't genuine and um, you married primarily to come to Canada, your case would be turned down. Well, the Conservatives made that disjunctive so that even if your marriage is genuine, if you married to come to Canada or stay in Canada, you don't get to come. So, so you know, the, the best example is you're in a relationship with someone. He's going to have to leave Canada. So you decide, well, maybe I would have waited a year to get married, but let's marry now so you don't have to go and I'll sponsor you. Um, that's a case where you married primarily at that time to immigrate to Canada to be able to stay in Canada. So even though you're in a marriage where you may even have kids, you're refused admission because your your intention you moved your marriage up in order to stay in Canada. There's actually cases that say that. Um, so it's that kind of mean spirited. What does it matter if if you moved up your marriage so you could stay together, so you could stay in Canada, if it's genuine, it shouldn't matter to the Canadian government at all. But those kinds of petty little mean rules came in place over the last 10 years. And the real problem is the Liberal government has has is undoing some of them, but the culture of 
negativity is not being changed. I think that will take a longer time to happen. And, you know, if, if that's why I say if we could just recalibrate and go back to the time when human rights meant something as opposed to trying to get away around them, it would be a positive move forward. So over the next 10 years, I would like to see the courts become human rights courts where they recognize the importance of the human right over a stupid technical rule that's unfair to people. If there are Australian or Canadian or American students or junior lawyers listening to this podcast and they're considering becoming an immigration lawyer, refugee or asylum lawyer, what do they need to think about and what, what do they need to be driven by to be successful? I think they have to like people. Um, in, in order to do this work because you're you're really hands-on in terms of people's lives and they count on you. Um, so I think, and you have to be able to, um, you have to be able to put up, to be able to cope with the emotion, the emotional stresses that you're going to be under from doing this kind of work. So I, th- I think it does take a personality um, to a particular kind of person to be able to do it. There are lawyers that do it that, um, that may not really care where it's a business as opposed to um, a career. I think there's a difference there where they're just treating it as a business and it's not that they particularly care about the people. But I think that it's a great practice in terms of um, in terms of helping people. You actually do make a difference in people's lives. It's very it, it, it's important work in that sense. Um, and I think you have to be prepared to, uh, realize that you're never going to be rich in doing it. You can. I I live a decent life. You know, I take vacations. I have a house. I'm fine with my life. I don't want to be a millionaire um, or become a downtown lawyer living in you know in one of the rich areas of the city. That's not my life. Um, but but that is. I mean, you make choices when you do this kind of work. And the other thing I think, and I I think I'm always. I, I stress this a lot with students is that when we started practice, we started on our own. When we got out of law school, uh, a group of us that were friends decided we wanted to practice together. We It never occurred to me to apply to a law firm for a job to get paid as a lawyer to work for somebody else because that isn't what I wanted to do. I wanted to start with my friends of practice. And so we've done that. And actually... In, in my city, Toronto, it's not just Toronto, across Canada, my generation started their own law firms. And some of the best, like labor and other boutique kinds of firms, are people from my generation that started their own practices. There's, I think there's a, young people now are intimidated by that. I mean, it, it, it's ironic when you've got all the resources at your fingertips because you've got your computer. You can do the research in your office. You don't have to go down to the courthouse to the library to copy books um, in order to put a case book together. It's just so simple. You actually can start your practice on your own. And now there's listservs like our immigration section of the Canadian Bar Association. It is probably the busiest listserv in the country. I mean, there's five, maybe 10, 20, 30 messages a day from people asking questions about how to practice. It's a very responsive bar. Everybody helps each other in terms of um, in turn, and then there's the 
in terms of um, answering questions around how to practice. That's immigration. And the refugee lawyers have one, have a, a really effective listserv as well, like that's more specialized in terms of refugee law. So there's no reason why you can't start on your own. If you want to help people, it, just start your own practice. Like it, it doesn't, it, you can consult with other lawyers. You can get the experience by watching lawyers do work and or go to court and things like that. A lot of young lawyers track senior lawyers to get the experience um, to see how cases are handled um, and or co-counseling with a senior lawyer until you get the hang of it. I mean, I, I, I remember there was a, a more senior lawyer than me who hadn't been to court for years and years, we co-counseled for a number of years so he could get back in the groove of going to court. There's nothing wrong with doing that either. I, there's all sorts of ways you can develop your own practice and become an effective advocate. But I, I do, I, I get this sense among young lawyers coming up that they sort of feel they have to have a secure job with a law firm. Th- those jobs may not exist, but it doesn't mean the work isn't there. Finally, I asked Barb about the new generation of Canadian lawyers who are continuing this refugee and immigration work. With the new generation of lawyers, I do think this new generation, I can see the difference. We've had students over the years and it just seems like there's a a broader group of young people that are concerned about human rights coming up as young lawyers. And what I really like about it, I don't know if this is true in other countries, but in Canada, it's very diverse. Like the the young lawyers are from all different backgrounds, different religions, different colors. It's 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 really it's really good. I mean, it's a, a, a kind of a vibrant. You just sort of feel like it's a vibrant situation. And they're all there. You know, you go to the um, different events that young lawyer that are where there's young lawyers at them, and it, it's just it's it's really hopeful. Like I I get energy from their energy. <laughs> they're, they're you know they're eager to do things, and and I can't say I saw that in in some of the generations before. Like I've been practicing for close to forty years now, and I I think this generation is probably the closest to the generation I came from. Like we were at the the end of the student movement, the end of the 60s. And um, it was a time when we were all very idealistic. It was like that book, The Greening of America kind of thing, where um, we thought we'd change the world. And you realize quick enough that you're not going to change it the way you thought you could quickly, that it's going to be a little step at a time. But I see that generation. Maybe I'm wrong, like maybe it's not that way, but it just seems to me there's so many more young people that are concerned about the future, the climate, with climate change, with indigenous rights, with so many, on so many different levels they're active and it's really, really good. Lawyer by Day is made by me, Mark Tyndall. Let me know what you think about this episode on Twitter at Lawyer by Day Pod and I'll look forward to chatting with you again very shortly.